As we continue in worship and preaching this fall on the journey with Moses and Jesus, I'm using the lectionary text from the Old Testament. Amy is using the gospel lection for each day. We pick up where we left off last week from Exodus chapter 16. The whole congregation, remember that word, the whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So what you could eat each day, except on the sixth day, gather enough for the sixth day and the seventh day. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord, because God has heard your complaining. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine, flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? The word manna literally means in Hebrew, what is it? They saw it on the ground and they said, what's this manna? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. You have heard the ancient story. My sermon is entitled, Sustainability, a Test of Faith. For those of you who have not met them, and it's very strange for Amy and me to have to introduce our sons to you, but Bennett, uh, excuse me, Jackson is a second year medical school student in Greenville, South Carolina, and, Be and Bennett, who was two years old when we came here, is now a senior at Furman University. Bennett is a double major in music and sustainability. When we tell people that, they either say, sustain a what? Or they say, oh, recycling. It's not exactly recycling. Let me just read to you the description from the Furman website. The sustainability science major focuses on the critical linkages between global environmental, human, and social systems and emphasizes analysis focusing on understanding sustainability-related problems and assessing potential solutions, or in shorthand, recycling. When I read today's text and the first commentary on this text, I excitedly sent B, we call him B, I, I sent B an email. He did not know that sustainability is in the book of Exodus, but that's pretty much what this story is about. There is enough. There really is enough to sustain us, all of us, day by day, 
there is enough because the, in the economy of God, an economy of grace, the way is abundant. We pick up the story from last week where God has parted the waters so the Israelites escaped on dry land. But as soon as they get to the other side of the sea, someone says, I'm hungry. And suddenly everybody is whining. If only we had died in Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill. A flesh pot is a meal with meat in it. When our family walked El Camino de Santiago in Spain in 2009, one small restaurant featured a menu item that was translated in strange English as a meat bucket. Mm, meat bucket? We ordered something else to eat from that restaurant. You and I cannot relate to this complaint because we enjoy meat at virtually every meal, but a flesh pot would have been a splurge for an Israelite. In fact, the people's complaint was really disingenuous because as slaves, it would have been rare to have meat with any meal. But they complained anyway. Moses talked to God about it, and God saved the day. Now you remember last week, when you're between a rock and a hard place, God saves the day. But this day, God said to the Israelites, I will feed you bread in the morning, what's it, this manna, and meat at night. But you can only take what you need for one day at a time. So God fed them just enough for each day, every single day, until they entered the promised land. And Jesus said, when you pray, say, Give us this day our daily bread. This fascinating story could not be more contemporary to our nation, which could serve in many ways as a parable of biblical proportion. In his well-read essay entitled The Liturgy of Abundance, The Myth of Scarcity, Walter Brueggemann puts a fine point on the issue for us. The majority of the world's resources pour into the United States. Money is becoming a kind of narcotic. We hardly notice our own prosperity or the poverty of so many others. The great contradiction is that we have more and more money and less and less generosity. Less public money for the needy, less charity for the neighbor. And Jesus said, when you pray, say, give us this day our daily bread. Divinity School professor Anathea Portier-Young says, it is noteworthy that the first issue to arise after the experience of liberation from slavery is how to establish a sustainable economy. If you are preparing to preach on this passage, you might discern a connection to the food insecurity that still plagues hundreds of millions, or to the modern hoarding of wealth and opportunity by the privileged elites that more resembles Pharaoh's economy than the new wilderness polity. We live in a nation of great abundance. 
And we are doomed to almost sure defeat by fear. Just listen to the fear in political campaign ads, most of it one way or another about money. They're going to take your money. They're coming to take our jobs. It's all about what is mine and the fear that they, some they, are coming to take it away. Prior to every presidential election, gun sales soar because gun manufacturers sell fear masterfully. They're coming to take your guns. We live in fear. The great freedom that democracy could bring is crumbling under the weight of willful disinformation, hate-filled ignorance, irrational fear. The great prosperity capitalism could bring to the masses is being hijacked by the myth of scarcity. I don't have enough yet, and they're going to take it away. Brueggemann says the creation story, however, is a liturgy of abundance. God creates this wild, wonderful world and blesses it. Be fruitful and multiply. And that liturgy of abundance continues, he says, until we meet the Pharaoh who has just dreamed that there will be famine in the land. So Pharaoh gets organized to administer, control, and monopolize the food supply. Pharaoh introduces the principle of scarcity into the world's economy. Because Pharaoh is afraid that there aren't enough good things to go around, he must try to have them all. Because he is fearful, he is ruthless. Pharaoh hires Joseph to manage the monopoly. When the crops fail and the peasants run out of food, on behalf of the Pharaoh, Joseph says, what's your collateral? And they give up their land for food. And the next year they give up their cattle. And the third year, they have no collateral but themselves. And that's how the children of Israel become slaves, through an economic transaction. The world's economic systems are built on the myth of scarcity. And it is a simple failure of Christian intellect and imagination not to be able to envision a different way in our system to a better world. We are so determined to keep it like it is or make it like it was that we cannot get out of our own nearsighted, selfish way to even imagine peace and prosperity for all. In the Facebook the text that were going on before uh, the worship started, I told Bennett, who signed on for worship this morning, listen to the sermon. Because when I emailed him about today's text, he answered me this way. The passage, this passage, is so relevant to the climate change issue today. Consumption, he put in all caps, consumption is the biggest driver of climate change and it is so deeply rooted in developed countries and the paradigm shift we need feels nearly impossible. It is so much easier to avoid the root of all big problems as Professor Portier-Young echoes Bennett's insight, Pharaoh, she says, would not hear the people's complaints, so he would not have to respond. 
beneficiaries of political and social systems that are ordered toward the preservation and augmentation of wealth and power for one group at the expense of another are skilled at ignoring the realities they do not wish to acknowledge. Bennett said it's so much easier to avoid the problems and that's why it is frustrating when people think sustainability is about recycling. L-O-L. That's what social scientists call weak sustainability, relying on advances in technology to save us. Overconsumption is the problem. It's largely due to greed, but a lot of it is based on every business aiming for economic growth, no matter the cost. There's no one answer to the question, but involvement in community building and good governance will lead to policy changes, ultimately the way to start fixing the larger systematic issues. Thank you, Bennett. Consumption and greed born of fear keep us from celebrating the liturgy of abundance that God has written into this world. Brian Smith recently shared a book with me about our fear of scarcity. We're running out of oil, that author says, and people are afraid. But running out of oil will actually be a good thing because that will force us to learn better ways of powering our world. Yes, there is a limited supply of oil, but there is an unlimited supply of human creativity. If we can overcome our fear. Sustainability, creating an economy, a global community that works for everyone is a test of faith. It's not a miracle. Many people only hear in this story something supernatural. Oh, just look what God did back then. Well, I have been attentive to the ways and the work of God all my life. And there have been plenty of hungry people in my 56 years, and God has never worked this way. The realism of my experience convinces me that this is not a story about divine intervention. It is a story about learning to pray for and to be contented with daily bread, just enough for today. Do you have enough yet? What is enough? The lesson is on imagination and creativity and hard work that will be needed if we are going to learn to live together on a shrinking planet. The lesson is about learning an appropriate balance in life, balance even in a national economy. When St. Paul wrote about stewardship to the church in Corinth, he ended by alluding to today's story. The one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. God's economy is not about socialism. That's a scare word for all times. It's not about taking your money and spreading it out evenly. It's about finding a balance that sustains and prospers all. And responding to God's initiative of abundance has the power to shape any congregation just as it did the congregation of Israel long ago if we can overcome fear and learn to pray with Jesus. Give us this day our daily bread.
Sustainability is a test of faith. How is your faith? Will we pass the test? May it be so. It's fascinating on this journey with Moses and journey with Jesus, how these texts begin to weave together to have from a more ancient word from the Hebrew scriptures and then yet another ancient word, but closer to our time from the context of Jesus day, uh, a common theme. My sermon is entitled, It's Just Not Fair. Sometimes after we read the parable that I'm about to read to you, our inclination is to act like a seven-year-old and proclaim, it's just not fair. On the journey with Jesus today, when I read to you this parable of the laborers in the vineyard, you're going to say, well, that's just not fair. And by our standards, it is not. It's not fair, that is. But I don't know where we got the idea that fairness was as big on God's list as it is on ours. Justice, yes, a very high priority for God. Fairness, I'm not quite sure. You've probably heard this parable before, but let me read it to you from Matthew's Gospel, the 20th chapter. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them out into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go to the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever's right. So they went. When he went out again about noon, and then again at about three o'clock, he did the same thing. At about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go to the vineyard. Now when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. Wow, that is just not fair. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought then that they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. Wow, that is just not fair. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have been born the burden of the day in the scorching heat. It's just not fair. But he replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. And it's just not really fair. Oh, that last first, first, last thing. Yep, it's not fair. 
Maybe if we move out of our childish mode with our fervent need for fairness, we could see this parable in a different way. The same commentary that Russ read to you uh, about the passage from Exodus written by Anathea Portier, she connects the manna story to this laborers in the vineyard story this way. We are challenged by a parable that defies economic common sense, revealing the economy of God's kingdom to be one guided by justice, grace, generosity, and the reversal of status hierarchies. Let me share a scene repeated over and over again every day of every week all around the world. This is one scenario out of any number that I could share. Every day at 3 a.m., the men who have slept on the floor of the Border Farm Workers Center in El Paso rouse themselves from sleep. Soon the buses from the farms growing chilies and peppers in New Mexico will rattle into the parking lot. The overseers will step off the buses and look over the crowd of men hoping to get work in the fields. Those who appear young, strong, and able will be summoned to get on the bus, while others will be left behind, hoping that another bus will soon arrive needing laborers. These workers will toil until evening under the hot southwestern sun, usually earning far less than minimum wage. The days are long, but there's no overtime pay. And the work is dangerous, but there's no workers' compensation or health insurance. One of the workers was quoted as saying, I'm angry that I live in a world where a man who picks food for a living can't afford to feed his family. When the renowned preacher Thomas Long relayed this story, he said, this parable of Jesus found in Matthew 20 puts us squarely in that parking lot in El Paso. Indeed, it puts us in every labor market where men and women desperately needing work press forward, hoping to be chosen. This parable is real. It happens every single day. Now, we are prone to use parables and assign the role of the characters. In this one, some are inclined to assign the role of landowner to God and then assign the role of the all-day worker to the Jews, and then assign the role of the one-hour worker to the Gentiles. If that's how you interpret this text, the message is clear. No matter if you have been faithfully religious, God-loving, God-fearing for your whole life, even for generations, you will receive the same portion of God's grace and love and inclusion as any of the Gentiles who are new to the fold. Or maybe you hear this parable and you just get so stuck because you realize it's not a business model that will be sustainable. If the landowner consistently runs his human resources department in this way, then soon the workers will figure out how to scheme to become less industrious. There's no incentive in the parable. It does not fit any of the models we understand about business. 
because it's just not fair. Or we could bypass the low-hanging fruit of interpretation and dig just a little bit deeper. Commentator Caroline Lewis says, the subversive and easily overlooked purpose of this parable is to make us realize how deep our sense of entitlement exists, how our sense of privilege is operative in how we envision what the kingdom of heaven looks like. She says that the good news is that Jesus persists in telling us the truth about ourselves. Left to our own devices, we will quickly lose sight of the kingdom of heaven. The parable begins with, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And left to our own devices, we will lose sight of what the kingdom of heaven is like, and we cannot let that happen anymore. The good news is we have a vision of a world that is truly good news. And we get to be a part of making it happen. Is it possible for us, maybe especially as citizens of the United States of America, to see this parable as good news? The good news of generosity, the good news of abundance, the good news of justice. We like the good news of fairness, but I'm not so sure that kind of good news is of God. This kind of good news is the good news of a world turned upside down and inside out where the last are first and the first are last. Can we picture it? Can we celebrate it? Can we work towards this kind of system ourselves? I'm indebted to so many scholars for helping me think through a text each week in deeper ways than just the surface glance. Those scholars also help me to see texts in light of today, the here and now, for what good is a text that doesn't speak to this present moment? An Episcopal priest named Rick Morley blogs often about the lectionary text, and his take on this passage will forever transform this parable for me. So I share it with you. He says, this parable sounds unfair, to our ears, every bit as much as it sounded unfair to those who heard it when Jesus said it 2,000 years ago. But these words are only unfair if you're looking out for yourself first. I mean, what if just for a moment your main concern was for someone else to get ahead? I mean, what if that was the only thing on your mind? for somebody else to get ahead, then this parable would be amazing. This parable would be exactly what you're looking for if you're looking for someone else to get ahead. What would it take for us to cheer on those last workers who came as the bulk of the job was finished and as everyone was cleaning up for the day? What would it take for us to whoop and holler when their check was just as big as everybody else's. Well done, our long workers. Way to go. I'm so happy for you. Well, it would take us having the mindset of God to hear the parable this way. 
And then Rick Morley asks, isn't this parable amazing? If you aren't looking out for yourself first. And then there's one final take on this parable of giving thanks for the many, many laborers that work tirely, tirelessly for us to have all that we need and more. The many, many workers who do not make enough to support their families in order that we have more than we need. Albert Einstein said, a hundred times a day I remind myself that my inner and outer life depend on the labors of other people, living and dead, and that I must exert myself in order to give in the full measure I have received and am still receiving. Do you, a hundred times a day, remind yourself that your inner and outer life depends upon the labors of other people? All of those laborers all of those workers deserve a fair living wage. Perhaps this parable is here for us, to, for us to be reminded to speak up for that, to fight for that, to push for that. Maybe this parable is here to remind us to actually be the landowners who are generous beyond measure. Wouldn't it be grand if it was said about our generosity as individuals, our generosity as a church, our generosity as a nation? Wouldn't it be grand if people saw us and said, wow, they are not fair at all because they are so lavish in their giving? This parable is about the economy of God. What if we made the parable come true? May it be so. Amen.